Welcome to Share Public Health, the Midwestern Public Health Training Center's podcast, connecting you to public health topics, issues, and colleagues throughout our region and the country, highlighting that we all share in public health. Thank you for tuning in to Building Health Equity, the Institute for Public Health Practices series highlighting health equity practice throughout Iowa. Over the course of the series, we will be inviting speakers to dive deeper into their experiences and health equity practice to serve as a learning enrichment opportunity for health department staff and anyone interested in building health equity. As a heads up, these podcasts have been reformatted from the original Building Health Equity webinar series recordings. Welcome. I am Casey again. I work with the Institute for Public Health Practice at the University of Iowa College of Public Health. It's a really long way to say that I work at the intersection of academic public health and practical public health. I'm here today with two wonderful individuals, Martha Carvor and Mazahir Saleh. Um, I'm going to invite the both of them to introduce themselves and then we will get started. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Casey. Um, and it's great to be here with Maza here um, today. Um, my name is Martha Carvor. Just a little bit about sort of my background or why I'm interested in this topic. Um, my public health background is in epidemiology. Uh, I'm a graduate from the, the University of Iowa College of Public Health. I'm also a physician um, focused in infectious diseases, and I do a lot of research um, in health equity at the intersection between um, diabetes and infection. Um, and so COVID certainly sits um, right at that intersection as well. And COVID has become an increasingly important um, part of the work that we do in um, the area here in Eastern Iowa, but across the state as well. Um, and it's, it's something that's particularly personally important to me, I'm thinking about this, as a longtime Iowan, I in fact grew up um, in central Iowa, I went to school um, here in state. And then um, after doing some more of my own training in, in other states came back um, in, in part to do some of this, this work. So it's really exciting to be here with all of you today and, and hear from each of you too. Thanks. Hi everyone. Uh, my name is Mazahir Saleh. I'm originally from Sudan. I came to this country over 22 years ago. Uh, I came to Iowa in 2011, like late 2011. So I always say 2012 because it was November. So uh, I came and I joined with uh, a lot of people who are very passionate about social justice and worker rights. And together we found a Center for Worker Justice, uh, where I become the you know board. Uh, uh, members. Uh, in addition, I uh, after that I become the vice president and the president of the board, and finally I become a community organizer. And as of April of last year, I become the executive director of the center. And and I'm very interested in this topic because uh, during 2020, uh, I, I think our members, low income members and people of color, really are the people who must like hit a lot by this pandemic and they, they really suffer during that time. And I, I think uh, this is uh, worth to be highlighted and how we can avoid all the things that happening during that time next time. Yeah, thank you, glad to be here. Thank you both for introducing yourselves. Um, we'll start with maybe the both of you kind of explained your like elevator pitch five second, how did you get to public health? How do we get here today? Um, but we're in a we're in a webinar about health equity and COVID nineteen. Um, so maybe could you talk a little bit about like when you got this email that that where you're like, hey, do you want to be in a webinar? Can you talk about like what went through your head? Why are you passionate about this? What what made you want to show up today? Yeah, for for me, really, when I get this email, I, I first I, I need to understand exactly, uh, you know, I I. It, it took me a while to understand exactly what my role will be. Uh, but seeing that, like the equity, uh, like during COVID and how, uh, you know, how I know that a lot member of, uh, like of the Center for Worker Justice has been really, uh, you know, get very hit hard with, uh, whether like with COVID itself, uh, because they work in the places that uh, don't have like a, like a necessary PPE or whether, 
are they even ready to learn about this? And are they believing on it? How, you know, it, it, it took us a lot of time so we can convince our member to do like that, to take even the shot and everything. That's why I said this is, will be really good to talk about because that next time, there is many, many barriers that uh, if uh, the health department start looking at it, maybe next time if we have something like this, hopefully not. So they can have like really a good a way of good outreach, what to do so we can accommodate those, uh, you know, community members who are not normally being marginalized uh, from like, involved, like really segregated kind of from the community. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, I think I had uh, in some ways some similar impressions in thinking about um, the webinar and why this topic is so important and um, just highlighting some of what Maza here has already said about the, the, the really deeply disparate impacts of COVID-19 um, and the inequities that we've that we've observed really over the last few years um, superimposed on very long-standing health and health care inequities um, going back many 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 decades really hundreds of years um, so uh, I guess another thing that I I find really important to discuss right now at this stage in the pandemic is um, that even as we are moving into slightly different um, periods of time in terms of transmission of COVID itself um, and the ways that we're thinking about prevention, the ways that we're approaching um, this both as a healthcare system and as public health systems and, and um, communities, is there are huge public health needs related to COVID um, where I worry um, a lot about the next few years being a critical point um, for us to act um, as public health um, providers and um, as advocates in communities because there are so many other things that have been impacted by COVID that will continue um, to cause or exacerbate um, disparities long-term. Uh, if we don't act now or we don't sort of think structurally about how we can address those things. So one of those is long COVID, um, which is going to have a huge impact, is already having a huge impact um, on a lot of uh, a lot of communities um, and a lot of people, uh, you know, really worldwide. Um, and certainly across Iowa, we know that that is true. Um, and then other things, because there's been so much disruption in health, healthcare access, social determinants and structural determinants of health, and um, just the process of healthcare itself, that so many other types of health conditions from maternal um, health to diabetes care in general, um, to, to sort of um, you know, pediatric vaccination, um, it, that these are all areas where we're seeing um, gaps and that many of those um, are things that we need to direct our focus towards to um, because there have been such huge, um, huge differences in the way that all of those things have worked over the last few years. Um, so I think this is really a critical time um, to be talking about this as as coordinating or collaborating groups and agencies. And I think public health is crucial, uh, really pivotal in, um, in making, in closing those gaps and doing so in a way that's equitable. Yeah, so I think something like my background is in local public health and something that I'm thinking about listening to you talk is like, hmm, you know, you're not in government public health, but what maybe as someone like outside looking in, what um, what opportunities or different like leverage points do you both feel that like a partnership with an organization such as yours could bring to the table with local public health in terms of, right, the, the equity issues that were amplified by the pandemic and how those are going to be perpetuated longitudinally after the pandemic ended in Iowa? I think like uh, there, there is still remaining huge issue with the risk of communication across language barriers in many workplaces. Uh, many industries that are dominated by immigrants and people of color were demand essential at that time. Like say, okay, you have to go to work because this is, you know, we cannot give you vacation on there. And even if you just decide not to go, that's, you're gonna lose your job. And during that time, we, we see a lot of people lost their life because it's, it's essential, they have to go there and they have to do this. And I remember during the pandemic, 
uh, a lot of, of our members are meat packing workers who like work at Tyson meat packing factory. And we, we start, and the people are not ready to know even what this, what this disease, how you can really isolate yourself if you have it, how can, uh, what what should you do? What it is, uh, you know, do you really need, uh, you have health insurance, are you ready for this? Also the people, they don't have this. And suddenly people start getting COVID from the meat packing. And we, we start receiving like call from the center, like for the center for, okay, this is because people are not able to go to work again. But in the same time, they live in a huge family at the same house and everybody start getting COVID. Nobody uh, even can help them grab some food or anything. Uh, I remember we, uh, we, we, won, we, we knew about one of our members and we went there to ask them um, how can we help and uh, we just call and said we are in our way bringing some food. And when we went there, we, we find out only the kids there. And uh, the dad was not there, the mom was outside the country and the dad is not there. Where's your dad? The dad is the one who have COVID. They said he went to Walmart to grab us food. So like that, like learning of, you don't have to go and be in public because you have COVID and all this, like this kind of learning, they don't, have, they don't know anything about this. Uh, so uh, this is also in the beginning. That's why uh, everything was in English, uh, you know, uh, non-English language communication, I think uh, also written on all, even the TV and the internet, everything was in English. Nothing was in like French, Arabic or Spanish. Uh, that's why, uh, you know, those people who don't speak, non-English non speaker are the one who really in the beginning, they don't know anything about this. That's why most of them just depend on the social media where people say about it. And when we start having the vaccine, all the people who try to encourage them to come and have the vaccine, they say, no, the vaccine will kill us. The vaccine, that's what they know. They know just the thing that they hear it from the social media. Nobody educated them. Uh, the, the flyers uh, you know, and everything about COVID have to be in all the language. That, that's what I think is really a lot of barriers. And uh, uh, moving forward, I think uh, they, they need to have those kind of like language uh, and also not only language, just reach out to the people and give them education in where they start. Uh, most likely if you send a flyer or if you put it on the internet, who go to the internet from the immigrants community? Nobody does that. Like they don't go and uh, read on the website of the health department. No, that's not happening. So you, I think they should reach out to community like like organization like ours, organization like Neighborhood Center, and just provide this information on like on the same uh, uh, language that they they understand. Or maybe at that time I know there was not like big gathering and everything, but we have the Zoom. We educate a lot of people for the Zoom, and we. People start downloading in their phone, if even they cannot do that, but everybody start knowing about Zoom. We can have a Zoom meeting and explain it in their language by a community member who they trust. Like a leader from the same community should give that. Because sometimes, like I'm gonna give you an example. Here at the Center for Worker Justice, we have Latinos, we have Sudanese, we have African, but automatically when person come for help, they look, and they go to that person. They relate to the people who look like them. That's, that's why since I become a director, we start having a lot of Sudanese community come here because I'm from Sudan. And when Rafael was Latino as the director, a lot of Latins was coming here. So I think uh, this is a, a, all the time identify a leader in the community and that leader supposed to have the message. That's why instead of doing that, we need the every sector in this town, whether at the county level, city level, the, the employees who work there have to look like the community because people can relate to them. Um, but that's not, we, we, that's a big, huge lack of uh, like uh, culture, uh, diversity uh, in those kind of sectors. So uh, instead of like looking after that, if we have, like for example, if I work, which is I don't, by any means I don't wanna work at the county. But for example, if I'm working at the county, I can be the one who will go there and do this to the community and, and they know me and they will trust me and they will listen to me. Uh, that's why I guess, I mean, 
uh, we need just uh, the people to be look like the community when you uh, want them, to, when you send a leader to somebody or you want to uh, advocate about something, send a bright person and with the right language and all this. Okay, I will stop here. Go, Marta. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, um, I definitely agree. I think one of the things that um, we may have an opportunity to do right now is in in a pandemic where there's been so much disruption of, of really all systems and, and all sort of structures um, throughout society and, and community and public health and in healthcare. Um, I think one of the opportunities that we have um, in a system that, that is that disrupted um, is to think about what a better system looks like and build that one, right? And so I think some of that starts with breaking down some of those barriers that have historically been um, prohibiting communication that's critical, right? And and so I think some of those Mazi here just described um, in, in in really important detail, thinking about um, community um, being a part of public health. It should be a part of public health. It is public health, right? And so not sort of having these artificial distinctions and I think, you know, likewise on the other side um, where, of, of sort of the way that we sometimes think about structures and systems, um, one of the things that I would love to see um, is less artificial distinction between healthcare and public health. I mean, I work at the intersection of those two and I view them as being very much, you know, inter intertwined. Um, but I think that I've also seen the way that, that the, um, the separation between the two um, can create a barrier, right? And, and it can create a huge, um, a huge uh, disparity of its own, right? And so I think there are many, many things that that have to happen um, for for that to change. But I think we have um, an opportunity right now that that I I don't know that any of us will ever have um, in in the same way um, because of what's happened over the last few years. And so I think that's one of the things that um, that that we're thinking about and talking about more and more in, in the groups that, um, that that we're working with. And so examples of that, that I would love to see getting more um, stuff that gets centralized or even kind of monopolized in healthcare settings out into communities, right? And, and making sure um, that people really do have access, convenient access, um, access um, in in any number of um, different venues, in different languages, in different um, settings, to certain types of health screenings, certain access to certain types of care. Um, I think long COVID is, a, again, a crucial area where we need to act quickly on that. Um, it's a personal opinion, but I think that long COVID is, is also a public health emergency. Um, the symptoms may be moving a little bit more slowly, but it's going to have a huge impact on so many different aspects of health and community as well. And I think um, what I don't want to see um, is all of the stuff that we learn and all of the, the treatments that we start to offer for long COVID being so centralized in a traditional healthcare setting or a traditional, you know, big academic hospital and not um, getting access um, out to into communities. I actually think if at all possible, it should start in the opposite um, direction and, um, and be um, starting in communities um, where some of these impacts are the greatest. And that, that really loops back to exactly what Mazahir was saying. That can't happen without meaningful community engagement um, and meaningful um, trust and rapport building with communities for, for that to work because there is a lot um, a lot of, uh, of rebuilding and restructuring that can happen. I will say that, um, th that I think this is a great time <laughs> to, to be thinking about rebuilding um, a system that works and a system that is fair in a lot of ways that it wasn't before the pandemic. Snaps for that, Martha. Snaps for that. I totally agree. So when you think about some of those issues that we saw, um, and you know, Mazahir was saying like, find a trusted community member. What can, in addition to, um, you know, working with communities, not necessarily against them, working for them, with them, what are some things that you both think that the local public health departments can use to leverage their positionality within the system to be better partners and to 
make a greater impact that maybe like we don't typically think about? I know that's a really big lofty question because we're very like data-driven people. And sometimes those creative solutions can be can be challenging to, to sell boards of health and boards of supervisors on. Um, so that's where my brain went. I really don't know what the thing that, I know that the county is doing their best because during the pandemic, they start also doing a language, uh, translating language and everything. I know like everything that they say, like uh, we need uh, to reach out to the people where they are in terms of language and media, uh, you know, this is really critical. But I know that the county is starting doing that, but they try their best to do like everything. But thinking about something bigger, I really can't think of anything right now, but yeah, uh, still, I guess, believe we need to work again with communities to like do this not i know that they are printing materials in different language and everything but the problem is is how that material get to the uh you know the workers and other marginalized community uh the way that being shared maybe with with community like organization like ours or neighborhood center and and all this but I really, we want that connection. We want that the community, the immigrant community to be trusting the county that the, the county goal is to want to keep them safe. How can we get to that point? Uh, because right now, just everybody, oh, they, the, the county want us to get the vaccine. Uh, why? Even this vaccine is not good for us. Uh, how can the county become a trusted uh, you know, like uh, government entity so that I can just, each time you give us something, I just believe you. I uh, This is the county and, you know, county said that and we trust the county and we need that. That's why I guess maybe the county need to go to the people where they are by communities and give like many, many, education so about anything, not only during the pandemic, just in general. Uh, you know, people like uh, in marginalized community and immigrant and refugee, they like one-to-one -one conversation. So uh, yes, why don't do like, for example, go to Pheasant Ridge Neighborhood Center. And over there, there is a lot of marginalized community, like people of color, Sudanese community, a lot of people can just walk to the neighborhood center. And if the county had like a workshop say, or maybe they talking about certain topic, what you write, what you are, uh, what the county is. Do you know some people, they don't know what's the difference between the county and the city. Uh, while I was running for office, I, I, everybody when I said city council said, what's that? What's the city council? What's the difference between this and the Congress and everything? That's why people, most of the people, they don't know even one county. When you say like county and city, they just cannot click in. The county inside Iowa City is just also like, you know, just different. It is hard for them to understand it. I, I just want the county to, to build trust with, the, with those communities so that the community can trust everything that coming out of the county and say, hey, those people really, they want to keep us safe and this is something safe for us. They never gonna like uh, bring something that's gonna harm us because most of the people, a lot of women I talked to you during the pandemic uh, and they are vulnerable, uh, but they don't wanna do it. Some of them, they say, no, you get, you're gonna have like blood clot and you will die. Some of them say, yeah, I'm young. And if I have it, they said, I cannot have baby in the future. And all, like all this wrong thing because they just listen to this. Uh, what's anything in the WhatsApp, anything like somebody else come and talk. What I mean, if the county did not talk, somebody else will come and talk. And they will believe that person. That that the end of it, really. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, thank you, uh, Mazir. Again, I'm sort of just um, agreeing with, with what you've said and just sort of um, adding to that. Um, one thing that I've 
been thinking a lot about and we've talked about a bit um, too is that when we really look at what's happened with the pandemic and we think about what is the public health workforce or what is the health related workforce in a global public health emergency, um, I think one thing that's been helpful for me at least is to think about who that workforce is. It's much broader than we typically think of, right? So who did work that sustained the life and health of the population? And this includes many frontline um, occupations that we may or may not think of as being public health or healthcare, but that are clearly critical for public health and clearly critical um, for the sustenance of the rest of the, of, you know, everyone in the population and everyone in the community. So one of the things that I think can be really helpful, and I'm really interested in hearing how others uh, might look at the same idea um, or look at it differently or, dis or disagree completely, um, that thinking about what that public health workforce looks like and including um, including this more, more broadly. So when we think about protections, when we think about um, the way that we include people in recommendations that we make and the way that we discuss what's gonna be communicated and how those policies will come down, um, if we are only thinking of the, um, the parts of the workforce that we've, you know, turned in a certain way, what are the assumptions implicit in that? And, and sort of, is it everybody that should be involved in that discussion? Is it everybody who's doing work that is also crucial for, um, for public health, especially in a situation, um, in a situation like, uh, like a pandemic or such a, a widespread public health emergency? Um, so I think that those things are, um, are important. Um, and I think also uh, is sort of coming back to something I think, Casey, you mentioned about data is um, I think one of the things that we work on um, in, our, in our research environment here is the ways in which we can do a better job with our data and the way that we analyze our data to ensure that our analyses are also more fair, that we're also like accurate in the way that we're telling the story of what's happening in patients and populations and communities. And so I think there are also ways to, to sort of think about that, again, by partnering um, with communities that may be um, relevant in your particular county or, or region. Um, but thinking about, do, are the data telling the story um, that actually allow you, will actually allow you to advance public health or advance health equity, or are they just telling the story that you need to document um, for sort of institutional purposes? And we do have to document stuff for institutional purposes because that's the way it works. But if we're really gonna be serious about advancing um, health equity, we have to get better at answering um, the, the right questions that will allow us to, um, to see where those, um, where those barriers are, address them, and, and test, evaluate whether or not we adequately resolved the problem or adequately um, address those concerns. And so I think there are opportunities there um, as well in a, in a very public health front to think about data that already exist and the way that we look at them and the lenses that we use um, when we look at those data. Perfect, thank you so much both. I really loved your comment Mazakir about if you aren't shaping the message somebody else is going to tell it for you and I think um I know I ran into that personally and that is a lesson learned very much so so before we kind of like open it up for Q&A I just want to give space for you both to kind of talk about your current projects related to um equity work I know it's inherent to both of your work like day in and day out but if there's any special projects you want to give some airtime to um, briefly, I want to open that up before we switch over to the Q&A. We learned a lot from the pandemic. We learned how like really our members are not trusting the system at all by any means, like whether they think uh, this vaccine has created for white people, this vaccine, it will harm people of color, whether it's this, uh, why Johnson County want to give us Johnson Johnson? They want to give the immigrant Johnson Johnson and the Iowan something else, you know, all of this, like a lot of like drama was out there. That doesn't mean this is right, but it means like that what they understand. So we decided here to do like some kind of like workshop education, but we apply to a grant called Intelligent. And as soon as we, if we get that money, of course, we're going to do like really uh, a big education workshop about health. 
and in general, like whether it's like for the people who don't have insurance, how can they, what the option out there, also talking about coronavirus and the vaccine and we bring people who really know this issue and how kind of us and we translate it in different language and we're gonna have people have question and answer uh, and also who to go to if you need uh, like uh, healthcare, like help or something like that. That what we are, we put together very good proposal. Uh, hopefully we will get grant for it so we can hire those people to come and do it for our members. Uh, but that's what in there, yeah. Besides everything else we do. <laughs> I think everything related, where we're doing housing, where we just try to pay build for people, where all this is connected, you know, at the end to health. But uh, this is a main focus of health for our members. Thank you. Yeah. One of the things that I guess we're really focused on too, and, and I want to thank Mazahir and Center for Worker Justice for being um, a, a partner in this, in fact, with us is um, a project that's really focused on these intersections between COVID, long COVID and, and diabetes, um, which it looks more and more from the science that's coming out that COVID itself can lead to, to new onset diabetes um, in both adults and children. And so we're really focused on um, health equity and ways in which we can um, think about, again, taking some of those things from traditional healthcare settings, including access to emerging treatments that might come out for long COVID or just support, right? Just having, you know, listening to people talk about the symptoms they're experiencing, validating that and offering support, um, which we know right now um, is pretty different um, in, in, different, um, in different groups or different environments. Um, for just long COVID uh, symptoms. And so we're already seeing a lot of stigmatization and um, sort of superimposed, you know, additional um, difficulties and anxieties and depression because of those symptoms that are in fact very real. Um, and so I think that um, just really trying to get as much of that out um, into communities and as open access as possible um, so that communities, that community and um, county public health can use um, any of these kinds of tools. If we develop those, um, we're committed to making sure that those are accessible um, and, and openly accessible. Um, and so we're, we are definitely um, continuing to explore ways to, to work directly with public health and work directly with community organizations. Um, and so if there is um, you know, if there's an interest in having any of those discussions, we're happy to, to continue to explore those too. Um, and I should say um, that we we appreciate that the University of Iowa itself has, has um, directly sponsored um, that work. So um, we know that this is also an institutional priority to um, improve not only the health of our state, but to ensure um, that health equity is advanced in the state. Thank you both for indulging my questions. Um, I'm going to put a question for the attendees in the chat, and I'll read it out loud as well, just to kind of chew on. Um, and I'll invite you to either respond in the chat or raise your hand and we'll unmute you. But what are some things that are coming to mind for you as you listen to Mazahir and Martha share their thoughts and experiences and expertise? Like, what's coming to mind? Like, oh, I think I could do this in my work. Um, just to kind of share ideas and I'm going to mute myself as the train goes by. <laughs> Tim, would you be interested in unmuting and talking a little bit more about community health workers and what those look like where you're at? And by look like, I mean, like, what are their job functions? What, what role do they play? Yeah. Hi, Tim here. Can you hear me? Yes, we can. Thank you. Sounds good. Thank you guys so much. This is really good. I appreciate Mazahir, the community-based, uh, I mean, that's very visceral as to what you're saying. And you can tell that you were definitely created to be in the position that you're in right now. And I just really love that. And Martha, your your perspective and being able to try to bring that healthcare and and, and um, uh, public health together is just uh, certainly, you know, spot on. So my position, I, I, I'm actually, I've been in Iowa. I've been a, a family doc, ER doc in, in Iowa for over 30 years. Uh, I just got the job as the uh, chief medical officer for Molina Health. We're going to be one of the, um, hopefully we're bidding to be one of the uh, managed care organizations for Medicaid. So um, what I really like about this compared to my previous experience in commercial insurance and, 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 and in practice, 
is the fact that you guys are talking about the building blocks to bring back, you know, to bring uh, uh, health big, right, uh, uh, in, in, a, in a more vibrant manner. And one thing I like about what I see my position being is that there are different levers that you guys are speaking to that we can pull because I think more and more compared to when I went to University of Iowa Medical School back in, you know, the late 70s, early 80s, is we're realizing that that it's not just intellectual healthcare knowledge that we're going to make, you know, people healthier by. It truly is a lot of these community things and a lot of these, you know, uh, uh, social and structural determinants of health um, uh, that need to be impacted on in order to get, quote, healthier communities. And it needs to be community focused, right? I mean, Maza, here, your, your comment about, you know, uh, they, they need to look like them, that, you know, that is very, very important. I will tell you, my grandparents came from, quote, the old country, right, from Southern Europe back in the 1920s. And that's the way they were organized in neighborhoods where they would have a representative talk about, the, you know, flu shots and other kinds of things. This was a, almost 100 years ago, right? And but that's, that's how they sort of organized. And then they would allow, in essence, or to say, yeah, you need to go to the doctor, you need to go to the hospital kinds of stuff. And it's the same thing that's just happening. It's just different groups of people there. And, and so we need to figure out how do we go ahead and to organize that and how to use the resources to do some of the very, very same stuff, right? Because it's, it's the concept of trust. And how do you go ahead and build the concept of trust? I don't think it's a knowledge deficit so much. And, you know, in the science, okay, should we use this dose or that dose? I get that, okay? But the, the, the issue is how do you go ahead and to, to be able to mold that public health and healthcare and community trust together? That's the sweet spot. It's not so much a solution. It's just more of how my thoughts are developing as to how I need to reflect with the, the program that we're building to reflect a lot of the stuff that you guys are saying. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, no, um, thank you, Tim. I think I agree. Um, and I, I definitely agree with what you've said about um, the social and structural determinants of health being by far like the most important drivers of health, right? Um, in general. And yet almost none of that information is recorded in electronic medical records, right? And then there are other ways in which our healthcare systems um, do practice based on science and based on data and based on sort of those intellectual aspects that you mentioned. And there's a lot of truly evidence-based good valid care. Um, there are also some things that are stuck in healthcare in the way that we um, still do biologize race, for example, and some of the things that appear in the medical records, um, the way that we do things that are in fact not science-based, not evidence-based, and do create barriers um, with that sort of community um, engagement um, that we've talked about. So I think that that is another thing, you know, just speaking in terms of the healthcare piece um, that we also have a responsibility for doing um, is really looking into our own systems and saying, um, what are we really saying with the systems and the data that we collect? Um, and um, should, if we know that social and structural determinants of health are more important than some of the other things that we collect, um, how are we going to, you know, consider this um, more broadly? And how do we open that up um, in a way that is also more consistent um, with the evidence? Um, and so I think that idea of community engagement and community based research um, is also as rigorous as any of the other sort of study designs or things that we think about um, traditionally and base a lot of things in on healthcare. Those are not, they should not be separate. Um, the scientific rigor is scientific rigor. And if you're trying to do one without the other, um, chances are you're making a mistake and almost always that mistake will result in an inequity or disparity of some kind. There's a question in the chat. I'm gonna read out loud and then we'll get to Kevin. Do you have immediate recommendations for us, whether public health practitioners, researchers, or clinicians to support communities across the state on the ground? Very broad question, anything that pops into mind. Yeah, in fact, I think that would be, uh, I'd love to hear from um, participants also about thoughts about that. And I'm not sure if that's, um, I, ha I have a question, a similar question as well. In fact, was that um, from Ms. Wilkes? Aloha Wilkes. Yeah. Um, 
Ms. Wilkes is also a part of our um, the program that uh, program coordinator um, for some of the work that we've been doing, and um, so a, a key part of a lot of the work that we're able to do here. So, okay, so you planted that question, Martha. I, I did see, not. I, I see did you. Not, <laughs> I did not, but I'm also appreciative and also wanted to acknowledge um, her work and the program. Oh, <laughs> she says it wasn't planted. <laughs> Aloha. Yeah. Do you want to say elaborate more? Hi, everyone. So yeah, um, I could just um, give some input into um, maybe how we can support our communities in this. So we have, as part of our research program, we have formed community advisory boards. And we have found these very informative and um, identifying the direct needs of the community. So if you can encourage people in your family and or relatives who work in different sectors across Iowa to participate in these type of community advisory boards when available, I know we're all kind of like um, exhausted in this in this space because there's a lot of work to do. But sometimes this, this is a very um, a commitment that is not of much that is, you know, minimum time, but it really gives support in identifying the community needs and getting those addressed. We have identified um, a lot of uh, areas in gaps that we had out in Storm Lake, and we're um, creating some real-time interventions this summer because of funding and student, um, student workforce. So and we were able to do these things mostly from a community advisory board. And it goes from, like um, Isaiah was saying, it goes from all different about health, you know, dental. It doesn't just have to be about COVID. But starting to engage with the community to build a rapport and trust is very important. And that could be done through health screenings and many types of whatever the community needs are. So I encourage um, everyone to go out and um, speak with, community members, relatives, and ask them to participate in these type of spaces so that we can, as a community, we can help to identify these needs. Thank you. I think, yeah, you, you bring a really good point. Uh, that's earlier the question, I guess this is good answer the question area about what uh, like, what do you say, like partition and researcher can do like, I think all health workers still, I really appreciate the, the mobile clinic from University of Iowa that come all the time here to the Center for Worker Justice. Uh, you know, like uh, a lot of people don't have health insurance. They don't go to the doctors because it's really expensive. They don't go to the emergency room, but those kind of, uh, of mobile clinic, uh, really people come and engage on them. And I, I think another thing they can do, they can just, uh, if you have free weekend as a doctor or as a like nurse practitioner or somebody, if you can like continue do those kind of clinic like but um, specialized clinic like uh, to talk about certain uh, for certain people who have certain thing, it could be education clinic about certain stuff or it can be like also treatment clinic for for certain kind of disease like for people who have chronic high blood pressure and they don't have uh, health insurance. Uh, so those kind of or maybe talk about breast cancer or come and like uh, talk about it in general and what they can do, what the early thing that can they see, all of this kind of thing because people, some people, they don't go and do like uh, a yearly checkup about themselves because they don't have, um, you know, they don't have really health insurance coverage. That's how I guess a uh, healthcare worker can engage with the community and it would be great. Thank you, Mazahir. I want to get to Kevin. He's been waiting patiently. Um, yes. Go ahead. Good afternoon. Kevin Green, Director at Sloan District Health Department across the state in Sioux City, Iowa. Just was looking with this whole health equity approach to certain things. Um, I agree with the social determinants of health. We're trying to figure out an electronic health record that can track those sorts of things so we can pull some reports to see what our own uh, basically progress is. But I think one of the things I'm seeing across the state of Iowa that maybe you could give some insight and guidance to is, for example, when we get a funding proposal coming through, um, they've already pre-identified what they call our priority audiences within that. And so those priority audiences come through, but I truly know that when you begin to do this from a grassroots perspective, you do not know which audience you're going to capture, as, as you mentioned, 
that key informal informal leader within that you know entity or um, grouping of individuals, because that's the person that you work with to help to begin to develop the relationship, develop the trust. Um, you know, and it may not be in the health area; it may be something in more of a social dynamic area. But I'm trying to figure out how and. We are quite diverse here in Sioux City, 30 some languages spoken in our local school. How, how do you propose to even, I mean, we're interested, but we, we've got a priority population, but we know needs are greater elsewhere. Um, we have a refugee population that's going to be moving in. I understand there could be up to 150 families in the next six months coming from specific areas. So what suggestions or insights do you give to begin to address these multiple layers of needs but figuring out what works for the community and where are we going to get our success? You know, uh, at, uh, any community, they have somebody that they listen to and that who we call leader. Uh, some people, they don't even know themselves they are a leader. But for example, while we was trying to give training to the meat back in workers about like uh, COVID, like uh, PPE necessary for COVID or like safety in the workplace and all this, we would like to bring them, but most of them are like Congolese who speak uh, French. I don't have any, I don't speak French, so I don't have connections. But I started just talking to somebody. I said, who is in your community that people really trust and listen to? And they identify one person. I went and I sat down with that person and have one-to-one -one conversation with him about to find out, like, tell them about what we do and what we'd like to do, and also to try to find a self-interest from him to be interesting in, in, in what we do. So uh, he needs to know this training. He liked the training, and I said, can you bring more people? And everybody come when we have, like, 50 people that we train about safety in meat packing, for meat packing workers. And they, we ask all the, all the people we ask them, um, how do you know, like come here? Everybody say, this person invite me, this person invite me. Like, that's why if you have, you're gonna have like a lot of refugees and from the beginning, I think so you need to see who is the leader there. And after that, you communicate to those people through that leader, whether you want to know exactly what issues they have so you can direct them to the right, uh, organization or to the right department that they taking care of this. And, but nobody will come. Don't think immigrants and refugees they come forward with everything. I feel like here in Iowa City, my student, my own Sudanese community, I always tell them, you guys are segregating. You reminding me that you live in Iowa City with your body only, but you are in, you don't, you live in Sudan actually. But you know, your body is in Iowa City because you don't know anything about what's going on in the city or what's going on in the area. And, uh, and all that because they, they cannot find that trust. They don't know how to navigate the communities. They just feel like maybe they are not welcome. How can you like make those people feel welcome and, and, and go to them and talk to them with the language that they feel comfortable about so they can start talking about their issues. And after that, after you identify the issues, of course, you're going to find resources, how you can figure out to help them for those issues. That's what I think. You need, just, you need to organize them. Okay, thank you. Okay, before, we have one more question from Casey. Um, great name, by the way. But I wanna mention, cause we're getting close to time. Um, First, thank you to Martha and Mazahir for joining us today. We really appreciate you taking the time out of your schedule to talk with us. If you want to stay up to date with what's going on with this initiative, please subscribe to our newsletter. You'll be the first to know about all the cool things that are going on. And then I'm going to turn it over to Casey if you are still interested in speaking. Um, hi, so I'm actually a student at the University of Iowa. So this might be kind of student oriented, I guess, but um, as you guys were speaking, I noticed this theme of distrust in public health. And as a student and a person of color, I've seen firsthand how misinformation can affect the decisions that others make, not only about their individual health care, but about the health care of their families. And so I was just wondering, like, your guys' perspective on how we as students can prevent this misinformation within our campuses and promote, like, research and trust in public health. 
Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Casey. Uh, thanks for that great question. I'm actually, I'm really glad that you brought up the topic of students um, because I think students are one of the most powerful groups driving health equity right now. And I think that collective voice as well as individual ways of engaging with communities and putting pressure on institutions of all different kinds um, to say, this is not fair and it needs to change. This is not fair and it needs to change. Um, when you see those things happening, I think those things are really, really important. Um, I can recall in, in my own training at times that I would sometimes hear what I thought and I still think was bad advice, which is you just have to get used to the system and you have to wait until some later time before you can make a difference. That's not true. I think the way that you see the world right now is crucial to making the world better. Um, and you have a voice and you have very real action that you can take to do that. And so I think some of that can be um, getting involved in um, projects. And I know you you have um, some involvement um, in, in projects here on campus, um, which is really exciting. And like, just, I think having, um, um, being a part of that same sort of community engagement um, and exactly what Mazahir has been talking about on that same front as well, I think that's really important. But I think that's, a, it's really, um, great intersection because you can engage with communities and you can also engage with some of the institutions um, in, in different ways and, and in a way that I think it, I have personally seen has been very powerful momentum um, at many institutions. Yeah, I, I agree with Martha. And also just to add to it, uh, really for students of color, especially students of color can, can bridge a gap between the healthcare system and the family. Uh, because almost like, you know, like I trust my daughter more, like she can navigate the, the, the community more than I do because I think she grew up here, she know how the system work. And this is uh, maybe for me, I, or like I start knowing a lot in here, but uh, for example, I'm talking about like a, a typical immigrants uh, woman who came and she's not like, she, she's not studying this country. She did not go and navigate the community. She did not engage with the community at all. Uh, normally they trust their, their, uh, their daughter or son, their kids in, in general, uh, when, uh, and they start asking them everything and wherever they tell them, they will go with it because they think that their kids, they know better than them system-wise. No kids know better than mom and dad, but you know, but I guess I mean like system-wise here. Uh, I, I mean, uh, that's why they, the, the, the students uh, of color, especially they can bridge that gap where uh, they learn what the right thing is, what the, what the, learn a lot about the health case and just come and bring that home whether you want to do like uh like just educate like mom friend group and tell that bring somebody to speak to them or something like those kind of thing or just like tell the people about what you know how they can navigate the health the healthcare system and something like that yeah that's what i think okay thank you again everyone who who's still on thank you for joining us today Thank you, Martha. Thank you, Mazahir. It was wonderful. And have a great rest of your week. Thank you very much. Thank you, everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Special thanks to Trisha Kitzman, Cynthia Maharani, Natalie Peters, Melissa Richland, and the speakers who have shared their expertise with us. Theme music for the Building Health Equity podcast series was composed and produced by Dave Hoeing and Roger Heilman. Funding for the Building Health Equity Initiative is provided by the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services. Please see the podcast notes for an evaluation link and transcript. For additional resources and information, or to view the video webinar recordings, please be sure to visit www.buildinghealthequity.com.